Well, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. Are you guys excited to move forward and, and uh, hear the Word today? Uh, how many of you were able to tune in last week and we did a little video message and check that out? And uh, that was kind of our like emergency plan when we were realizing that, that Snowmageddon wasn't going to end uh, for church. So I'm glad we were able to. Thank you for laughing, Tammy. I appreciate it. There's always one amazing person who will laugh at the corny jokes that the pastor tells. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's who gets popcorn next week, just saying. <clears throat> but um, but we, we started talking about reading the Bible and uh, reading the Bible is an, is an interesting thing because I think for most people that would be looking from the outside in at Christianity, they would think, oh, all Christians read their Bibles and, you know, how boring is that? And, and they must all understand all the boring things there. But actually, if you look at the statistics, the majority of Christians don't read their Bibles on a regular basis. And that to me is kind of a, of a, a problem uh, because God's word, there's so much life and power and potential to change your life. Uh, in God's Word. And as we're in the midst of this series called Practically Spiritual, what what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, and we've been doing for the last several weeks, is just giving you practical principles and uh, uh, tips and tools to be able to engage with God through through reading the Bible, through prayer, through hearing God's voice. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. And so today I'm continuing what we started in the video series, or the video last week, talking about how to read your Bible. And today I'm going to go really practical into some some, uh, biblical interpretation principles and Bible study techniques because I want to equip you, uh, equip us as a church to be able to get the most out of of the Bible. How many of you are interested in that? Does that sound good? So we're going to be talking about how to study your Bible today. But you know, in in the month of January, it's known for this one word called resolution, right? And people say, what's your New Year's Resolution. What's the thing that you're going to do that will change your life? So for a lot of people, uh, it's I'm going to go to the gym. Gyms make a, a killing in January. They're full in January and empty in May, right? Like everybody has this resolution. This is the year that I just get ripped. You know what I mean? And most of us just end up ripping open bags of chips. Um, and I'm guilty of that as well. But January is the month of resolutions, and I'm going to do this one thing, this one habit. I'm going to work on my marriage this year, or I'm going to be a better parent to my children. And for most of us, if I don't know about you, but I see on Facebook where there's a post and it comes up and somebody says, the one thing that will revolutionize your year in you know, fitness, and I'm like, ooh, what is it? You know, it's like the, the Butt Meister 2000, you know, and it vibrates your, your butt, and then you get the butt of a champion, you know. Or maybe it's this one thing, if you only eat, you know, acai berries, then you're gonna instantly be skinny. Or there's like one thing, and we're always we're always suckers for the one thing, right? That's gonna really change our life in one easy step. But what if that existed? What if there was a New Year's resolution that you could make that if you followed through with and you put it into practice this year, one change, one small thing that you did every day that would absolutely change your life? And I'm here to tell you right now that if you would just read your Bible, it doesn't have to be yours. You can actually take one from someone else. But if you would read the Bible, right, uh, and you would do it every day and you would dedicate yourself to, to, to saturate in God's word and to, to allow God's word to get into you, Uh, to begin to engage with the scriptures, I want to tell you right now that your entire life will be changed. I guarantee it. Give you a money-back guarantee. I don't know what that means in this context, but, you know, I guarantee that if you were to put a a resolution on getting into God's word every day and reading 
the Bible that it would absolutely change your life. Did you realize that the the words that have the power to revolutionize not just your physical body, not just your marriage, not just your children, but every aspect of your life, those words are sitting in a book that many times is sitting on a shelf getting dusty, that we neglect. You know, you don't even have to have a book on the shelf. I read my Bible on my iPad or my phone, the U version. I mean, it's so accessible. The scriptures are so accessible more now today for us than at any other time in history. And yet we neglect to engage with God's word. Why is that? It's not because you're bad people or we're bad people. It's not because we're undisciplined, although sometimes we are. It's not because uh, we, don't, we don't want to or want what's inside of it. Many times it's because there's a, a subtle lie that has been implanted in our heads that says, I'm not, I, I'm not capable or qualified. I don't understand. I, I can't engage with it. And there's, there's very minor steps that we can take that can begin to unlock and open up the scriptures to us and begin to understand them. And so I want to I just jump into this today and talk about getting into God's Word. This one habit, this one thing that if I would begin to apply this in my life on a daily basis, it would change me, not just this year, but for the rest of my life. How many of you are excited about that? Excited about that. Very practically, what I want to encourage you to do, because I don't have a ton of time today, and I might not be able to finish this, uh, this today. But very practically, I want to challenge you to start a daily Bible reading plan. Let me just tell you what champions are made of. Champions are not made of occasional, are not made from occasional commitment to their chosen uh, sphere. Champion swimmers, they don't swim periodically, they swim every day. Champion chess players do not play chess once a week, they play every day. Champions of the faith, champions, champion Christians, champions uh, in Christ, they don't engage the scriptures on Sunday mornings for an hour from 10 to 11. Champions do it every day. And that doesn't mean you have to read your Bible for an hour every day, but what it means is you have to be committed on a daily basis to getting God's Word. I woke up really early this morning, knew knew that I was going to be coming to church, but I made sure that the first thing I did was get my daily Bible reading plan open and read through. I didn't have any glorious revelations. Angels didn't show up. I I didn't, you know, fall over in the Holy Spirit and shake and and speak in tongues. That didn't happen to me. But, But you know what happened? champion, the DNA of a champion continued because I stayed committed to it. Does that make sense? Committed to it. It, it stuck there. And, and, I, and I'm committed to that every single day. So get a daily Bible reading plan. Maybe it's one of those that's, that's going to take you a, a year to read through the Bible. Do it. Read through the Bible in a year. It's awesome. Maybe it's, it's a topical study for marriage or something, but get some kind of plan. Do it today. Start it. Yes. Do that. All right. Why? What am I going to get out of this? Well, let me just say really quickly, God's word is alive and powerful. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. In other words, God's word has the power to open up your life to transformation. Right? God's word is cutting through Every, all the superficial things, cutting through the noise, cutting through the uh, circumstances and opening you up to get into your innermost thoughts and desires because that's where change happens. A lot of people spend most of their life picking fruit and never allow their root to be changed. It's like going to an apple tree, pulling all the apples off and saying, oh, I sure hope we get oranges next time. That's never going to happen. Unless the root is renewed, the fruit remains the same. 
And so if you want your life to really change, see, the resolution, what we a lot of times do is we want to put a superficial band-aid on an intrinsic internal problem. And Christianity comes along and says to us, hey, you've got a deep issue. The heart of you, there's something going on in the heart of you, the core of you, and God's word has the power to get right through, right into that place where you can really change. There's no secret on Facebook to being a better parent. That's found in God's word, cutting through everything and getting to where the root of you changes. Come on, from the inside out. God's word is alive and powerful. When you read God's word, you're not just interacting with lifeless information. One of the things that that bugs me is when people say reading your Bible is boring. No, it's only boring if you're not interacting with the, the, the alive part of it. Come on, when you, when you get it, when you see it, when it begins to change you, it's not boring because life transformation is not boring. Marriages that are saved from divorce, that is not boring. Children that are raised up in God and, begin, and are world changers, that is not boring. That is alive. Come on. When God's power is evident through his word and it begins to change your life, it is not boring. It's alive. It's powerful. When we interact with the scriptures, we're not just interacting with lifeless information We're engaging with something that has the power of transformation, something that can can transform our life. One of Jesus' disciples, his name was John. And Jesus' disciples, oftentimes people will say, well, they were uneducated. They weren't, uh, they were uneducated men, probably to some degree. But John very eloquently uh, speaks in, in John chapter one about what we call the logos. And this is a concept that comes from Greek philosophy. There was a, a Greek philosopher named Plato. I used to call him Plato, but Plato is what you do. table, or Plato, you know, but Plato uh, had this, this concept, of, uh, and the Greeks had this concept of what was called the, the, the Logos, and uh, the Logos was the divine idea, the divine reason behind everything, and there's a lot, I won't go into all the philosophical connotations, but John Jesus' disciple, speaking to, uh, in large part, a Greek audience, a Hellenized culture, in John 1, he says, and the Word became flesh, and he's speaking about the Logos, the Logos came in, it became human flesh, uh, and he begins to speak about this, and he's speaking about the, the revelation of Jesus. And he, he equates that Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word made flesh. He's the divine reason and template and pattern for everything, the story of reality. Jesus came. He's the Word. He's the Logos. And he took on human flesh, and he dwelt among us. It was saying God's Word invaded humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I want you to just grab hold of that for a second, and we'll lay some foundation here. The Logos, God's Word, this divine template. And when we interact with the Scriptures, we are engaging with the Logos, God's Word, which was personified in Jesus. If you want to understand the Scriptures, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you need to engage with the Scriptures. And there's this unique uh, two poles, this unique situation when you talk about the Scriptures, that they are both static, but they are also dynamic. Okay? The scriptures are static in that they are complete. They're, they're written down. The words on the page don't change. It's unchanging, but they are also dynamic in that they are personal to you. They are life-giving and prophetic. In other words, in a particular moment, God's word could speak to you. Though the words on the page don't change, they have the power to change us. So it's static, but it's also dynamic. And when we interact with the word, 
We're actually interacting in some way with Jesus himself. We're interacting with the person of Christ. You know, a, a, a church that is devoid of the scripture is disconnecting itself from the word made flesh from Jesus. We, we need both this static and dynamic relationship with God's word. But God's word is not just static. It's also alive. It speaks to us in the moment. It's an incredible phenomena that, that you can be reading the Bible and read through a passage that you've read a hundred times. And all of a sudden, one day, it just goes boom and it blows up. And all of a sudden, God's speaking right to you in that moment. How many of you have encountered this? Man, I wish I was passionate about this a little bit. <laughs> It's static, but it's also dynamic. I love that. When the logos becomes a, a rhema, that's another Greek word, but, a, but in the moment, God's prophetic word speaking right to you, and that's incredible. God's word is alive. I was at a youth camp one time, and this youth speaker thought it would be really cool to hide a Bible under a hat and then scream, it's alive. And then he pulled it out and was like, God's word is alive. And we were all like, that was lame. Anyways, God's word is also powerful. Let me quote a Hindu that can educate us Christians about God's word, Mahatma Gandhi. He said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. Thank you, Gandhi, for helping us Christians. It's wisdom, isn't it? Because he understood there's power in God's word. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 12, I read it already, but in the message translation, it says God means what he says. What he, what he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. God's word is alive and powerful. But God's word is also trustworthy. You know, God's word, the, the scriptures, the Bible, has, has, is the most scrutinized document in human history, and yet, to this day, has stood the test of time, has stood the test of literary criticism, has stood the test of historical criticism, has stood the test of archaeological criticism. God's word is trustworthy. Listen to this. Today, there survive some 25,000 partial and complete ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the New Testament, as well as thousands of copies of the Old Testament, many of them predating the time of Christ. In the case of the New Testament, we have thousands of complete manuscripts and multiple thousands more fragments available. There are more than 5,000 copies of the entire New Testament or extensive portions of it. If these numbers don't seem like a lot compared to other works of ancient history, the manuscript evidence and copies for the New Testament far outweigh manuscript evidence for other works. For instance, there are less than 700 copies, and I would add to this incomplete copies, of Homer's Iliad and only a handful of copies of any one work of Aristotle. It's also interesting that within the early centuries of the Christian church, a number of scholars quoted the New Testament. This blows my mind. Amazingly, they quoted the New Testament so much that every single verse of all 27 books of the New Testament is quoted by these scholars with the exception of only 11 verses. Meaning we actually have a secondary reference to every single except for 11 verses in the New Testament from external sources outside of those source documents all within a few hundred years of the beginning of the church. How many of you doubt the existence of Julius Caesar? None? Did you know there is a tremendous one person? Well, that's all, that's all right. That's good. Uh, there is a, there is a, there's more evidence for the, for the historical person of Jesus Christ and the, the, uh, the record of his miracles, his miracle working, 
uh, and, his, and the activities that are de- depicted in the scriptures in the Gospels and recorded there than there is for the life and words and activities of Julius Caesar. So if you go to history class and you, you believe in Julius Caesar, you should also believe in another JC, Jesus Christ. Not just that he existed, that's not even up for debate anymore. If you hear somebody say, well, Jesus isn't really a historical figure, that's absurd. That has been completely trounced in, in scholarly, even secular circles. There's too much evidence that he actually existed. But even more profound is that Jesus Christ was a miracle worker. This is recorded from secular sources, all right? And you can study this out for yourself. And I've actually, uh, I'll tell you guys about this, but I've, I've put a, I have so much content for this message. I, I have way too much to give on Sundays. So I have a big list of references and things to read and that you can look at if you're a geek and you want to do that later. Uh, I'll post it online. You don't have to be a geek. You can be cool. But uh, nerds are the new cool, right? Geeks, yeah. But, but trustworthy, archaeology, internal consistency, fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness testimony, people that literally gave their lives. You realize all of the original apostles, they died horrible deaths to the very last breath saying, no, what we have bore witness to is truth. You don't die for a lie, right? People do not give their lives willingly, get boiled in oil or hung upside down on a cross or get chucked off a building or beat to death with a club or stabbed with a spear. These are the ways the apostles died, right? Uh, Thomas was speared with javelins in India. Mattathias was crucified in Armenia, uh, I mean, th- this is the real story of these apostles. And they, to the very last man, to the very last breath, they said, no, what we've seen is true. And they gave their lives for it. And yet people, I don't know about the Bible. I don't know. What I want to tell you is that God's word is trustworthy. And there's so many different ways that we can, we can see that. And, and all of these things together, they established not just the historical placement of the scriptures, but they established the trustworthiness of that document that what we're seeing comes from that time period. There was eyewitness accounts and that God's word is trustworthy. What I want to do today, why am I giving you all this? I want to build your confidence that as you engage with God's word, it's not just a spiritual uh, thing that get, it is, it's alive and it's powerful, but it's trustworthy. You can, you can dig into the words and place confidence there that what you're reading is God's word to you and for you today. And so establishing that God's word is alive and powerful and that God's word is trustworthy, how do we begin to engage with the scriptures? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for 10 more minutes. Is that okay? And that will still give us time to beat the other churches to the best restaurants. <laughs> Especially if you go close by, you know, Red Robin or something. You race in there and you just get yourself in line. That's what Jesus would want you to do. Okay. <clears throat> Some starting points for engaging with the scripture. And uh, real quick before I start this, this is going to be incomplete, it is going to be rushed, it is going to be uh, all of those things and not comprehensive. So I'm going I'm to I'm make available an exercise and all of these principles online for further study, okay? So just, just so you know. Number one, a key as we engage the scripture, a starting point, is we need to understand that the Bible was written for us but not necessarily to us. And a classic example of this principle is found in, in Jeremiah 29.11, which is this wonderful verse that I've quoted about myself or to myself many times, and it goes like this. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you love that verse? Ah, uh, it feels so good. God's thoughts towards me are not. Now, I believe that verse is true for us. I believe that 
that verse is true uh, to us, even prophetically, even in certain situations. But you'll actually get more out of God's word if you understand the context of who that was written to and why it was written and what was happening. Now, in Jeremiah 29, 11, this verse was being written to the nation of Judah and Israel that was exiled in Babylon. And that was that the context of this is not to us Christians sitting in suburbia in America, uh, you know, 4,000 years later, 3,000 years later. That's just not the context. It was written to the exiled community of faith in this foreign place. And God was speaking to them prophetically saying, the thoughts I think towards you, because you've had all this contrary evidence of all these things that have happened. Your nation's been invaded. You've been exiled, taken into captivity in a foreign land. But I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now you listen to this, and if you just take it to you, it makes you feel good. But if you understand the concept, you can actually expand this and say, this is the kind of God that we serve. That even when the evidence is contrary, even when we are in captivity, even when everything has gone sideways and is not going well, God thinks these kinds of thoughts. This is the kind of God we serve. And when you expand the scope by understanding that God's word was written for you, but it's not always necessarily written to you. And if you begin to dig into the context and see the richness and the the background of the tapestry of scripture, that what was happening historically and in the time and to the audience and who the author is and all of these kinds of things, it opens up an entire world and the Bible becomes a lot less boring and a lot more exciting. There's more there than just just that. Number two, this is a very important principle of of biblical study and, and biblical interpretation. We need to start with the macro view, the 10,000 foot view, and then work towards the micro view. So asking ourselves, what are the major themes of scripture? Is there a narrative arc? Is there a theme or a point? So as we interpret scripture, we want to interpret downwards before we interpret upwards. And in plain language, we don't build a doctrine on one verse. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, Jesus wept. Man, you know, I was preaching on that today. So what we can surmise from this, Jesus wept, is that crying is next to godliness. No, he just cried. He had a cry session. He was sad. You know, there's there's not a doctrine that comes out of this verse. And yet people oftentimes will quote, you know, one of the be- this is everybody's favorite. We'll judge not lest you be judged. I had a kid one time in our youth ministry down in Medford. I love this kid. He was, I was discipling him, working with him. He was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. Let's just say it that way. And, uh, and, and you know, one time he goes, you know, I'm thinking about getting this tattoo. Uh, and I'm like, okay, you know, it's, you know, it's not a heaven or hell issue, but probably not the best thing for you to do right now. You probably, you know, maybe get a job. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, doesn't really need the Holy Spirit to tell him that. It was just kind of like common sense. And he said, I'm going to get a tattoo. Okay. And it's going to be a tattoo that shows people that I'm anti-cancer. And I said, who's for cancer? <laughs> hey, I'm against it. I'm against cancer. See, it's on my arm. We're all against cancer. Nobody's for it. Who's like out there rooting cancer, cancer, cancer? You know, I want it, get it. No, nobody. And, and so I said, you know, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> How many of you are thankful that God matures us as we, you know, helps us? <laughs> but I did. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I said, nobody's for cancer. And he's like, oh, you know, and he said, well, he kind of mumbled, we'll judge not lest you be judged. And I'm like, you don't even know what that verse means. <laughs> he said, that verse doesn't mean 
that we never make any rational, common sense judgments or even judgments about morality or all kinds of things. You do, all of us do it every day, all the time. If you arrived at a destination that you intended to get to, you made judgments, right? You made judgments about distance and space and time and proximity. If you, if you uh, have ever gotten married, you made judgments about physical appearance and social norms. You may, we all make judgments all the time. Everybody thinks that something is right or wrong, right? I don't believe in morality. Well, what about Adolf Hitler? How, what do you think about him? Oh, he's going to burn in hell. Well, <laughs> judge not lest you be judged. Jesus wasn't saying we never make judgments. The context of that is that we don't put people in a box forever and say, well, you know, Larry, this is what you are and you're never going to change. You're just this and that's all you're ever going to be. That's what judge not lest you be judged. It's don't judge with an eternal judgment Otherwise, you might get that same treatment, okay? And so by understanding a macro view and getting context and understanding all these things, we don't build this doctrine out of one verse. So start with the macro view. Look at the, the themes of Scripture. What, what, what does the Bible as, a, as, a, uh, as an entire document, what is it presenting? There's four major themes and movements of Scripture as we interact with the Bible. Number one is creation. In the beginning, God. If you can get those is it four? In the beginning, God. I'm good at literature. I'm not good at math. Okay. In the beginning, God. Yeah, okay, four. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can get those, people have said, if you get those four words in your heart, most everything else works out. But creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see the fall. The second great theme of Scripture is the fall. The third great theme of Scripture is redemption, the coming of Christ, and the, both the anticipation and the, the fulfillment of, of Christ coming. And the number four is restoration. When, when God comes back, Jesus returns and all things are brought back into alignment. The Bible has this grand arc, this narrative that if you don't see this, you're going to miss, uh, if you don't see the forest, you're going to mess up when you look at the trees. Okay? So we start with the macro view and then work towards the micro view. The Bible is a collection of individual books, 66, that make up one continuous whole. But it's a mistake if we just view it uh, like a continuous narrative like a novel. And so instead, we should look at the major themes and movements and at what unites the differences in, this, in the books. So when we say the Bible is a story, that can actually be misleading because the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books written across thousands of years by many different authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like somebody, it wasn't like God sat down and wrote a novel. That's not what it's like. And so we have to understand that diversity as we pursue the unity of Scripture and take in all of these uh, uh, factors into account, like literary genre, historical context, and original language as we study the Bible. But when we do this, we are presented with a beautiful unified whole. These grand themes of Scripture, creation and the fall, uh, redemption, and finally restoration. So that macro view, I want to encourage you to begin to study those themes of Scripture and take a step back Stop trying to take individual verses and make a little cute Christian nugget to apply to your day and your daily devotions and step back and say, what, is God, what has God been up to through history and how is he speaking to me significantly through that? All right, number three, almost done here. We need to seek to understand also the Bible as literature. John Lennox says very eloquently, it would be a pity if in a desire rightly to treat the Bible as more than a book, we ended up treating it as less than a book by not permitting it the range 
and use of language, order, and figures of speech that are or ought to be familiar to us from our ordinary experience of conversation and reading. So there's a, this happens a lot of times in Christian circles where we say, well, God's word is not just a book. And how many of you agree with that? It's not just a book. I just got done saying that. It's not just words on a page. But we shouldn't treat it as less than a book, on the other hand. In other words, we have to also look at it and say there are literary forms. When you read the scripture, you see there's metaphor. There's simile. There's, there's all different types of literary forms. I have a big giant list of them right here. Imagery, personification, alliteration. There's irony. There's sarcasm. There's all these different forms of literature. And we get in trouble if we, if we don't understand that, that God and, and writing through individuals and, and uh, people writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God was communicating his word, he was also using human language. And we use these kinds of literary forms to communicate all the time. Here's an example. So this next uh, point is this. Know the difference between literal and literalistic. So let's, let's look at something here and look at metaphor in Scripture. In, in the book of Psalms, in Psalms chapter 17, verse 8, there's this beautiful verse where the psalmist says, Keep me as the apple of your eye, speaking to the Lord. Keep, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Do you think God has an apple in his eye? And you want to be it? Or do you think that God has wings? Do you think that we serve a God who flaps around with big wings? Do you? No, nobody thinks that. So when you hear that verse, what do you immediately understand? This is a metaphor. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. Now here's a problem, because people will come and say, well, do you think the Bible's literally true? Absolutely, I believe in God's word, right? There's a difference between the word literal and the word literalistic. We use metaphor to communicate literal truth all the time. If somebody says, man, I was late for church and I was flying down the road to get here. We don't think, oh, you know, Chase literally, you know, Iron Man <laughs> down the road, which, by the way, would be awesome. So if you have that capability, go for it. I was talking with some guys yesterday. I said, I think heaven's going to be the ability to eat chocolate chip cookies without any weight gain, just as many as you can, but also flying. That's the other thing, right? And, but when somebody says, I was flying down the road, what does our brain immediately translate that as? Not that they were physically flying. Well, you don't believe the Bible's literally true. God has an apple in his eye and he has wings. No, that's not what it's saying. There's a metaphor that's being used to say what? God, keep me with that, that special place in your heart. The apple of your eye. God, I want to be your favorite. I want, to be, I want to be treasured by you. And God, take me under the shadow of your wing. What does that mean? Shelter me. Keep me secure. We don't think God has an apple in his eye or that he has wings. There's a difference between literal and literalistic. How many of you find that to be a little bit helpful? Now, as you engage the scriptures, and I, I absolutely have not enough time to do this justice, so please forgive me. Some of the Bible scholars in here are just going, oh, God giving you just enough to be dangerous. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but, but understanding the, the difference that, that are there, I want to encourage you to study the Bible as literature. I want to encourage every one of you to read a book. Uh, it's called How to Read the Bible as Literature by Dr. Leland Riken. It's a fantastic book. It really, really helps us to, and it's, it's, it's incredi- he's incredibly honoring of the Bible, um, in no way seeking to demean or diminish at all the meaning of Scripture or the, the literal truth of Scripture, but rather to open up 
the ability to see the Bible for, for how it was written. I mean, when you understand that there's different literary forms, and you read the Psalms and you realize, you know, God's not telling us. There's, there's parts in Psalms where they say, Lord, I pray that you, you know, would bash the heads of the babies of my enemies. You know, when you read that for your daily devotions, you're thinking like, yeah, that's really blessing me today. But what we do understand is that in the depth of our soul, when we have enemies and there's a problem that we do feel that way, there's such an anger and just a God, oh, vindicate me. And so when you see that this is a poetic expression of deep agony that this psalmist is writing about and that God even will listen to this deep agony, it tells you so much about the kind of God we serve and it opens the scriptures to us in this brand new way that we just get so much more out of it. Come on. It's a wonderful thing. So... Understanding the difference between literal, literalistic, understanding the literary forms. I can't do a justice to, to that today. I am going to provide you guys a, a little worksheet and some links so you can do some homework there. And, and I encourage you to do it because it's, it's very, very helpful. Uh, and then lastly today, as we, as we get ready to close up, interpretive key of Scripture, engaging with the Scripture, getting the most out of it, is, is to see Jesus as the center of Scripture. If you don't get anything else out of today, take this away. Where is Jesus in the scripture? Every verse in the Old Testament from the fall onwards, really, but even before that, is leading up to the moment of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the, the revelation of Jesus. All the Old Testament is types and shadows and, and imagery leading us to, to the person of Christ and prophecy and then everything in the New Testament is, is coming from Jesus and the new reality, the new creation reality that comes from a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is the center of Scripture. Jesus is the key to understanding Scripture. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, where then shall we find the authentic Jesus? And very quickly, as he asks this question, I want to let you know that so many of us don't believe in the authentic Jesus. A lot of people, they, they like the social justice warrior Jesus. Well, Jesus was all about the poor and helping people, and that's, yeah, he was. Other people like the, the righteous Jesus. Well, Jesus is going to judge all the sinners, and he's going to come back, and that's who they like. And then other people like the really loving Jesus who helps your emotions feel good. And other people like the Jesus that loves children. And, but, but Jesus is all of these things, right? And so we're, we're missing and make him less if we just engage with one aspect of who he is. So where shall we then find the authentic Jesus, the real Jesus? Do you want to know the real Jesus? And Tim Keller says, the answer is that he is to be found in the Bible, the book which could be described as the Father's portrait of the Son painted by the Holy Spirit. I love that. The book which could be described as the Father's portrait of the Son painted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is full of Christ. As he himself said, the scriptures testify about me, John 5.39. Jerome, the early church father, wrote that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Equally, we may say that knowledge of Scripture is knowledge of Christ. Jesus is the center of Scripture. He's the point of Scripture. When you look for Jesus in the Scriptures, it's going to lead you towards truth. Beware of anyone saying, oh, there's deeper levels than Jesus. There's not. There's no deeper level than Jesus. You don't graduate from the gospel. You saturate in the gospel and it transforms you. In Revelations, one of the most obscure, apocalyptic, poetic, prophetic books, which is it's awesome, it's incredible, but it's, there's a lot going on there. One of the greatest 
one of the greatest verses that specifically speaks to scripture interpretation in this issue is this. The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness of Jesus. The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness of Jesus. When you see Jesus clearly, you will see scripture clearly. When you see scripture clearly, you should get a clear picture of Jesus. If those things are not aligning, then you need to align yourself to see that, right? We can calibrate on this. Let me say that again. When, oh, I already forgot what I said. So, but when you see a clear picture of Jesus in the scriptures, you're you're getting it right, right? And when you see Jesus clearly, you're going to see the scriptures clearly. That's how we should align. Jesus said to his disciple, Thomas, in this incredible moment, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it's recorded. Thomas says, Jesus, how should we know the way? And, and it wasn't just a statement about direction and physical proximity. It was a statement about guidance in life and, and the light of life. And Jesus profoundly said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, as we're here today, and I know we've talked a lot about interpreting the scripture, but every week there's people that come and you need to have a relationship with Jesus. And maybe in your, your mind, you can come up, Judah. Maybe in your mind, you didn't specifically come to church at the movie theater and say, oh, I'm coming to get Jesus. Your heart had a different uh, question mark on it. Maybe it was, I need hope. Maybe it was, I need life. Maybe it was just, I need a change. But you came because you knew there was something missing, something that needed to, to happen, And I want to let you know that the answer to that question mark in your heart is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can read your Bible and it can be dead and lifeless, but when you have a relationship with Jesus and then you engage the scriptures, it comes alive. But it starts with a relationship with Jesus. And I just want to tell you right now, there's no magic prayer. There's no magic commitment. You don't have to do a dance to get in with God. You just have to humble yourself and repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, but I believe in your son Jesus and what he did for me at the cross. That he died and he lived a perfect life and he sacrificed himself for me. And that by trusting in him, putting my faith in him, I can be made right with God. And if that's you today and you have the humility just to say, I need Jesus, would you just raise your hand so I can see? Thank you. See that all over this place. I I want Jesus. Come on, just raise it up, Bull. I want Jesus. I just want Jesus. I'm done. I'm done with everything else. I just want Jesus today. Come on. I just want Jesus today because I don't know the way. I don't know the truth. I don't know where life is at. But Jesus does because it's him. Come on. You want Jesus today. There's hands all over this place. I want Jesus today. And I'm boldly... I'm boldly asking him to come into my life and transform me from the inside out. Would you just pray this prayer with me? Dear God, I confess my sins to you. And I ask for your gift of life. I ask for your gift of forgiveness. I place my full trust and my full hope upon you, Jesus. Give me the grace to follow you every day of my life. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Come on, if you prayed that today, and in your heart, you put your faith in Jesus, let me just tell you what happened. You were saved. 
doesn't, like I said, it's not magic. I don't know how it works. I just know that when, when you give your life to Jesus, everything changes. That you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of life and light. Into God's love. You're part of his family. It's an awesome thing. Come on, let's, let's thank the Lord today for those that gave their life to Jesus. So cool.